Hello and welcome once again to Fly With Your Shadow. I'm your host, Jeff Robson, and this show comes to you from my home in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I've been a lifelong music lover and have struggled with my mental health for as long as I can remember. This show is my attempt to reach out and have meaningful conversations with like-minded people. This week's conversation is especially close to home as I'm talking to someone who spent his formative years in my neighborhood and we actually went to the same high school. My name is Scott Nolan. I'm a, a, a songwriter and an artist from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Scott Nolan burst out of that high school in a band called Leader House, which was a bit of a critic's darling, and they seemed poised for major success in the late 90s, early 2000s. That school was also home to a lot of people who went on to success in music and the arts, like a band called the Blue Meanies early on, and later on the New Meanies. That band was led by one of Winnipeg's best and most respected guitarists and musicians, Damon Mitchell. The Meanies went on a major label success and they toured the world. Scott Nolan actually played in and with that band over the years as well. Since then, he's forged a career as a rootsy rockin' singer-songwriter and band leader. He released a string of increasingly interesting and acclaimed albums, culminating with an album called Silver Hill, which was recorded with American supergroup Willie Sugarcaps in 2015. It seems that Scott's highest profile successes have come through other artists. He toured for a time alongside his longtime drummer and friend Joanna Miller, backing up Mary Gaucher. His work has been championed by Hayes Carl, who recorded Scott's song Bad Liver and a Broken Heart, and he's gone on to perform that song around the world and mention Scott's name wherever he goes. These days, Scott is busiest with the recording studio he built in his backyard called The Song Shop. There, he recorded an album with Ben Delacour, who you heard on episode 5 of this show, and with a number of other artists, including William Prince, who's gone on to huge success in Canada and internationally. Scott and William made his first album when very few people knew his name, except me and a few others in the know, and that really landed him a lot of success. When it came time to make his second album, he had the help of a huge international label. He had the opportunity to record it with one of the biggest name producers in Roots music, Nashville's Dave Cobb. But William still split the recording and producing with Scott right here in Winnipeg. That kind of says a lot about the trust and respect that they have for one another. Scott also has a book of poetry out called The Moon Was a Feather. He's recently developed a skill and a fondness for collage art and has been very active creating collages every day. I really wanted to talk to Scott about how the pandemic has impacted his livelihood, as well as his struggles with addictions and anxiety, which he's been very honest and open about. Your picture in a frame Where everyone remembers your name for better or for worse Blessing and the curse Bella Vista So, uh, tell me a bit about what 2020 was like for you. For a lot of people, it was it was such a drastic change from what they had planned because mm-hmm. most of the musicians I talked to obviously had a lot of touring planned. But you seem to be a guy who's who's done away with a lot of that. You're, you're not really actively touring anymore as far as I can tell. So, so 
obviously you, you, you spend a lot of time making records. I'm guessing that people couldn't come and make records and that obviously affected you, but, but how else did that professionally or, or even personally, how did 2020 affect you? Well, I haven't worked in, in like an, in a, in a direct earning capacity in about a year. So I can't, I can't produce records in the studio and I can't do concerts and where concerts are where I would sell books of poetry and collages and LPs. So my three kind of primary uh, streams were, were uh, taken away immediately. Now, I don't know about everybody else's experience. Uh, I've said it over and over. I'm very grateful to be Canadian during this. I'm very grateful to the current government of this country. Uh, I've had access to, uh, to support and uh, honestly, both, uh, both federally and provincially, I couldn't be more grateful. So it's an interesting thing for me. It's one of those politics aside moments in life where I go, you know what? I'm not going to argue and split hairs on Facebook. I mean, um, I, I'm a low earner, but I'm true about what I do. I pay my taxes. I'm, I'm above uh, boards uh, with everything I do. And because of that fact, I, I was eligible for support. And so um, it's allowed me to continue making art. And uh, that's all I really ever wanted to do anyway. So, uh, I, I, and I mean, I was... I was beginning to mount a comeback, you know, kind of I'd be in that when I say comeback, I mean I, I I've been I've been building toward um acquiring the ability to go out and tour again. It, it's it's not unique to me that the lifestyle, the demands of the industry itself, both in Canada and America, are not healthy demands. Uh the environments that support our careers, all the conferences, all the award shows, all, all the things we do to supplement what we do are honestly pretty often pretty toxic environments. They're not healthy at all. Um, I've worked with a lot of young artists in my studio and I always tell them, take care of yourself because nobody else will. Nobody's gonna pull you aside when you're derailing out there, especially if you're earning. So um, I, I was actually, um, uh, I talked to William. Um, uh, 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 William had been um, encouraging me to tour and asked if I'd be interested in opening his shows and I had kind of, uh, um, I'd agreed to that concept. We hadn't set any dates, but I'd said, hey, you know, thanks for thinking of me. I would love to do that. And Jesse DiNatale and I were uh, talking early about, I mean, it's how do you age gracefully in, in, in our business, right? Like in other mediums of the arts, like uh, we want to kind of be able to go out with our dignity intact and put on the best shows we can. And it's, it's ironic. Sometimes uh, uh, house shows were beating a lot of clubs. Some clubs were closing, and while it almost always broke my heart, sometimes they were closing because they were doing a bad job. They weren't promoting music anymore. They were selling booze. And I would go to a house concert at your place in St. James and make more than I was at uh, some festival. <laughs> you know, like everything was upside down, and people weren't really dialoguing about it. The general idea is if you're doing well, you keep your your opinions to yourself and enjoy it. And so... I had left it because it wasn't satisfying anymore. And when I left, I was at the best place I'd been at. I was opening for Hayes, Carl, and Mary Gaucher, and uh, the audiences were, were big and full. And uh, I, I could walk on stage every night to a, a packed house. Like, that's the dream. And it was still, it was still a struggle for me, the, the lifestyle and, and even sometimes the energy of the audiences. I didn't, I didn't want to be a party or, uh, you know, 
I was growing as an artist and I needed an audience that were willing to grow with me and so so yeah my plans weren't exactly derailed by the pandemic but um, it, 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 it closed off all my my uh, revenue streams for sure you just got me thinking about something new like do you think this pause has kind of is going to force some kind of a reset are we going to change any of the ways that we've been doing things as a result or do you think people are just going to fall back into the same patterns well, the world is changing whether we decide to go with it or not. So that's going that's going to happen. Um, we're seeing entire industries collapse. It's not just songwriters that aren't getting paid. I had a wonderful... Uh, um, I reach out to artists that I admire randomly because I'm interested in what conversation could come of it. So I reached out to a really wonderful artist named uh, Clive Holden, uh, who was in Winnipeg for many years. And I just... He's been supporting... Uh, me uh, a little bit online and I've been supporting him just in, in, enjoying each other's work and I suggested we chat and um, yeah you know before either one of us could go down that slippery slope of feeling badly you know it's like well streaming has taken away my royalty earnings but my iPhone allows me to you know produce things that used to take forty thousand dollar factor grants to produce so it's a funny thing um, as an artist the tools are are evolving and everything's changing and um, so I don't tend to, to grapple too much with those scenarios because it's uh, the changing of the world is what affects uh, my level of inspiration and the type of work I'm trying to create so just showing up and being present is part of the job and when you kind of decide to I'm gonna go in the music business you're not doing that anymore quite truthfully there's not a lot of artist involved in that world because you're you're doing the same appearances playing the same sets shaking the same hands it's the same circuit over and over and it can it can be hard on the spirit and even a little degrading frankly and uh, so um, you know for me my first goal and priority is to the the feeling inspired and getting up and, and playing with ideas and exploring things is the absolute uh, peak of it all for me. And I've, I've known that for a good number of years now, so I just protect it. And that's why I stopped touring. I stopped touring not long after I visited Folsom Prison in California. And it, it was the last step in a, a series of things that were going to change me and change the way I looked at my career. And, and so that's... Uh, and, and, I'm excited to go back out and travel because all these conversations and dialogues, I think, are uh, important to to the shows, you know, and the, to the storytelling and the interaction, and you know, I never played a sober show in my life um, until around the time I did my poetry book launch at McNally Robinson, which is not that long ago. And the guy I had playing with me, I met in grade four, we did our first gig together. We were 12 years old and played uh, Windsor School in St. Patel. And I was already using substances and alcohol and stuff then. So it wasn't until around that gig. I'd never played a sober show in my life, which is shocking to me to say out loud now. And uh, when I did that, I began talking a lot. All of a sudden, there was a lot of talking in my show where there was next to none before. And it was very personal stuff. And my parents became fans of mine for the first time. And I, I was surprised, you know, th these are difficult stories, some of them. I'm surprised they enjoy hearing them. But my mom in particular really, she likes that story. She likes what it says to other people. And so 
she's become a champion of it and and um I, and I find it more interesting too so i i can't be opening up for hayes at the house of blues and doing that show anymore because the guys in the front row are are are, are two fist and shiners and and um uh, you know they want a, a lot of energy and and for a long time i was i was willing to put that out and then i one day was no longer willing and i realized it was like uh yeah i wasn't getting the thing back anymore for some weird reason so do you feel uh, do you feel more sort of more powerful or more comfortable being vulnerable now whereas before do you feel like you were trying to be someone else for someone else absolutely or? yeah oh completely completely and i started like most people doing um you know almost borderline impressions of of people i like so when i was the 10 years i did at the bella i could cover tom waits it's thinking of jesse Natale. one of the first times he stayed in my home many years ago he was walking outside for a cigarette and i said to him when i'm writing a song and i can't decide if it's good i'll sing it in my tom waits voice just to see what it would sound like if tom did it and dare I say, I can do it pretty well. And he kind of laughed without turning around and went outside and lit a cigarette. And when I sat at the piano and did my tomboys, he turned around quite surprised. And I got pretty good at it because I loved that, that artist so much. And uh, Neil Young was another one that I don't know if I sang like him, but like there was a period where I, I, my band had a, certainly had a crazy horse ideology to it. And those were all me trying to, just be me and I wasn't you know and um, and that's okay that's part of the deal you know uh, I hid behind Damon Mitchell in the same way he hid behind me when when he left fronting a band he really relished being the side guy and he could open up in a different way over there so we kind of leaned on each other in similar ways whether we knew it or not at the time and but um, it took a while uh, early on I sang with an accent I it, it, it embarrasses me to no end to hear it now but I'll stand by it because it's authentic. It's it, you know, when when you listen to my records, uh, I could have done any number of things differently. But if you if you're that interested in what I do, you'll hear a, a very clear evolution, and and all the stuff was there on the first record. But by the time you hear the most recent record, it's yeah, it's um, in school I didn't learn very well in the traditional manner, and when teachers would say show your work it haunted me because I could never, when they had me stand in front of the class, I could never show work. If you ask me to show my work in any of the mediums of the arts that I explore, I can do it all day long now because I lived in such fear of not being able to explain how I found answers. And I was determined to, um, to not, you know, <laughs> not be subject to that anymore. And, and uh, you know, that was, critical part of the, the learning arc and, you know, the, uh, the desire for the artistry, did that come very early in life for you? Like, did you know that you wanted to create things on your own, even as a kid? Yeah. I got a dear friend. That's another school teacher. As a matter of fact, that I reconnected with, uh, I've always been friendly with, but we reconnected in recent years. And, uh, he told me, I said to him around 13 or 14, um, that I would be a writer in in some capacity, and I was shocked when he said it because I don't I don't remember saying that. It doesn't even sound like something I would say necessarily. But uh, him and I were in bands together, and often we didn't always make the cut. When half our band would split to off for a better band, 
him and I would be uh, two of the the guys that would get left behind. And so when I started kind of trying to write songs around 14, maybe 13, uh, something like that, um, it was him I was hanging out with, just the two of us. And that kind of tight friendship with other people not being around allowed me to, I mean, I was writing songs with titles like Lost Soul and really dark, unhappy stuff, you know, but I was already beginning to process my childhood and my my life through that stuff. I just didn't really know it exactly. And then by 14, 15, my cousin, um, after staying with my family for a little while, wound up in, in prison for the rest of his life. And he was writing me, uh, you know, I started really getting into drugs uh, a lot around that age. And I mean, I was in treatment by 16. And so I had a cousin writing me from a, a uh, you know, doing a life sentence in California. Nobody really knew this, or my family or anybody like that. And and so, um, and he, uh, you know, I've reread the letters. I've relived uh, uh, the relationship. And I look back now and he really, he really put himself out there to be uh, the best influence he could be on me. And so the one thing he always really did was encourage the art, encourage the music. And, um, we talk about poetry, we talk about music, and, and um, I'm grateful because he just, he always reminded me to keep it in there. And, and I look back over my life, it was always there. Even at some of my darkest, roughest moments, uh, music was always uh, a part of the uh, environment. And uh, I'm surely kept me alive. And what what really good friendships I still have today grew out of that, you know, so... But yeah, I, 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 it was always kind of, it was instilled in me pretty young. And then, um, like I say, particularly when I visited the prison, my cousin had died in uh, 2000, and I visited the prison a dozen years later or so. And um, the night before I went in, I stayed with this man um, that ran Arts and Corrections, who was very involved in the Canadian, uh, the California penal system, and very involved in my cousin's life and transformation. And I stayed with him and his family. Um, and I was walking around his house the night before I went in the prison, looking at all these big canvases, like incredible. Like, you know, I thought, oh my goodness, like this guy's got quite an art collection, you know? And so I asked him, I said, what's with your art collection? He said, oh, those are my paintings. And I said, oh my goodness, you're kidding. I was, I was shocked. I said, really, these are your paintings? Like, did you ever consider a gallery career? And he said, oh, I have one. And I went in and participated in arts and corrections, and I realized I could I could affect thousands of lives. I knew from that first visit, and so that's largely what he dedicated his life to. And and um, when I left there, I didn't. Uh, it's not that I no longer wanted a career, but I wanted some. I wanted so I wanted to continue to explore the deep end of it, and like my friendship with Mary Gaucher was a very close one because we we both spent our 16th birthdays in treatment. We've both had similar struggles, and um, the craft and art of song it's a sacred thing to us. This isn't you know of course we want our music to be heard, and sure it'd be lovely to be nominated and recognized in our fields, but. It's not um, it's not the critical part of the equation, and and we both knew that and shared that. So when I began kind of traveling with her, the audiences were a little more, you know, geared to what I was, you know, uh, feeling and and uh, you know. So it's um, yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's a funny thing. 
I don't ask much of this stuff at this point in my life because it's done so much for me. I don't need uh, uh, awards and, um, you know, being able to pay my bills is great. Being able to live in the manner in which I like is really wonderful. But ultimately, it's done so much for me. I feel a little embarrassed asking it for anything else. And um, I don't know. I can't speak to what it is for other people. But um, And it's not just music I've realized. The poetry. I didn't write poems as a kid. And. The day I stopped smoking, the first poem came to me. Every day that I walked, a new poem came to me. It was like this unbelievable gift. And uh, prior to the pandemic beginning, my, my uh, common-law marriage ended very suddenly. The whole world changed overnight. And in the midst of the chaos, one day I sat down and, and broke the spine on a National Geographic and started cutting. And I've, I've, you know, I, I'm coming up on like, I don't know, 200 days that I've done this since and it's um, instead of wallowing and and feeling sorry for myself or angry or resentful I just think boy I have I have an outlet for all these things and for what I do in life feeling the inconvenient stuff is critical part of it right so when my life got flipped up I, upside down I was already I'd already kind of trained myself to my cousin uh, used to call it sitting in the fire and he talked to me a lot about this as a kid. And we grew up in, in households with alcoholism and violence and things that are hard for kids to reconcile and deal with. And my cousin would always use that expression, sitting in the fire. And I kind of look at it as, you know, it's a human instinct. We, we, we don't want to be inconvenienced by uh, the hard moments in life. And that's why we have a lot of anxiety and depression and stuff, because... We, we don't want to sit with it when it comes up, you know. Uh, um, but we also often tend to make things more difficult because of our desire to evade the moment, you know. I don't want to feel this. Uh, I used to say that it's, it's easier to walk away when you're fighting. It's easier to leave, you know, um, holding on is easier than letting go. And uh, none of those things are necessarily the right things. <laughs> for us and uh, so yeah I uh, it's just been such a it's kind of been that sounds hokey to say but it's kind of been my best companion really like it's, it's always been there for me and I've I'd like to think I've gotten better at expressing myself and uh, so the work yeah I'm very very thankful for it I wouldn't I wouldn't be around anymore if I didn't have it uh, if I didn't have art in my life, there's no way. Is that just because it gives you an outlet for the things that you're feeling that normally you would have numbed with drugs and alcohol or, or why, why is that? Yeah, I, I think it's just, it's a matter of reconciling. I remember I said to my mom just recently from as far back as I can remember, I was always confused by the world. I was confused by everything, the way we treat the environment, the, the, the rate in which I, I've watched animals go into extinction, um, the concept of racism, you know, as a, a in, in music, in the musical realm, everything I have, the core of everything I have comes from black America. When I made my last record in 2015 in Silver Hill, Alabama, it was not far from ground zero of the civil rights 
kind of movement. But in the roots and blues communities, you could go back many, many years amongst the musicians, and there isn't racism there because the white guys learned. You know, we would sit around like school kids at the feet of these older uh, black men and women that, you know, I could, uh, you know, from Sister Rosetta Thorpe to, to uh, you know, uh, you know, a howling wolf, like whatever you hear in the realm of rock and roll, uh, a black person did it better 60 years ago. That's a fact. And you can see in, in other cultures, there's, you see a lot of retro movements, whereas in, you look at black America, I mean, it's always moving forward. Hip hop, uh, bebop, all these things, it's constantly inventing new, new uh, forms of expression because it's coming from an oppressed place. There's a resistance to it. And so for me, that doesn't have that same level of oppression. I look for the hard road. I look for the long road because I see what it does to the work. It makes it authentic. It makes it potent and important and, uh, and, um, and kind of worthy. You know, it, you should kind of reflect the world and the time in which you live. And this is a very difficult time. How do you reflect this time, you know? And so, uh, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's an interesting thing. And it, it's kind of a part of the, the DNA of it all, you know, like, uh, I, uh, I, I, I was really enamored by that part of, um, I went in Silver Hill. When I first started hanging around this farm in Silver Hill, one of the first guys I met was, a old-timer named Luther Womble. And Luther was an old Southern white guy that much of his career he played with, uh, uh, oh, geez, what's the artist now? I'm, I'm going to forget. Um, he played fiddle as well as guitar. He was a great... Um, but anyway, it, it, it you know, like... Yeah, I, I, that's what I liked about the community. There was never any kind of doubt, <laughs> you know, where these influences were coming from. And, and we were kind of... Um, yeah, we were learning. Uh, it's the way these the, the, the folk element kind of gets kind of passed down, right, and handed down. And so what we choose to do with it at this point is it's important, you know. It should say something. And Yeah, so I'm kind of interested in a, in a couple of things in the, in the you know, the darker things that, that you're talking about. Um, when you were younger and doing a lot of the drugs and alcohol and stuff, were you aware of the fact that you were kind of hiding from something at the time or, or d does that come with the maturity and the clarity of, of not doing those things anymore? Like, were you just partying in the beginning or, or were you aware that your hard life? Had... No, no, I don't think I ever partied to celebrate and, and, and my people aren't celebratory partners, you know? The, the function of alcohol in my house was a dark thing, and it wasn't... Um, I've been around families uh, since where it's it's more of a party. It wasn't wasn't very, very seldomly a party in my background. And uh, no, I don't think any of it was about fun. And absolutely, uh, identity and, and uh, um, yeah, all that stuff, yeah. Uh, absolutely running from myself and, and everything else. And, um, and you know, uh, there was years... Uh, my cousins, my dad, my uncle, these were tough people. I tried to emulate them and, um, and I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have it. I wasn't, I wasn't fearless like a lot of them were. And, and when I tried to be, it came out in other areas that were just as bad, like, like drug taking. I was fearless in that realm. And, um, so I wasn't the tough kind of character. A lot of those guys were, 
I think I probably tried, and I might have lived that lifestyle for a little while. But um, yeah, no, it was. It's taken me a lifetime to kind of, uh, you know, appreciate who I am and and kind of learn like uh, I've learned to really like my company. It took a long time, let me tell you. It's, um, yeah, I, I was talking to somebody not long ago and they were talking about something I was doing. I feel like it had to do with collage art and. And I said, you know, the irony of the, it seems to me all the things people like about me come from the broken place. Because that's where all these things kind of started. And I don't think I'm unique in, in feeling that way. I, I, we all struggle as young people. And uh, regardless of our circumstances or backgrounds, you know, we all have our hardships. Um, depression, anxiety, all these things, they're very real. You know, I, I remember for years I would, downplay my struggles because I could see people close enough to me that had it worse. You know, my dad certainly had it worse than I did. But in doing that, I never really allowed myself to, to, to reconcile my own struggles. I, you don't need to compare. We shouldn't have to compare. If a young person comes to me, um, uh, you know, crying for attention, as people like to say, I listen. I stopped and listened because, man, something's making them do that. And they shouldn't have to, they shouldn't have to defend it. Uh, uh, somebody that's uh, grown and mature enough to receive that moment should go and just listen, you know? And um, um, so, yeah, it was, um, it was uh, absolutely an avoidance and, uh, and it got me in a lot of trouble. It got me in trouble with the law at various points in my life. And I got a lot of breaks along the way and I, I it's not lost on me. Uh, I've continued to visit prisons and it's funny. Um, I'll often, when I'm, especially when I'm met with some, you know, gang members or heavier kind of characters, um, it, the conversation will often start with, you know, what are you here with the church? And I'll say, no, I'm not, I'm not here with any church. And, you know, they'll, they'll try to figure out what brings me. When they find out that I'm there on my own, my own dime, my own expense, uh, it surprises them every time. And, and, uh, a few of the things I talk about, I used to go in there and go, I don't know what I'm doing here. I didn't graduate high school. I don't have any curriculum, I, you know. Uh, and over time, I realized I do know what I'm doing here. One, I'm here to remind people in these circumstances that the arts community I know is the most inclusive society in the world. Not the one you see on TV and the, and the, the you know, the all the higher end stuff. I'm talking about like real art, you know, uh, poets, painters, whatever it is uh, um, that aren't in it for the acclaim. Um, it's a truly inclusive thing. And it's one area you can move into no matter who you are, what you've done. You know, I've met some incredible artists. My cousin was changed in prison by art. I've met men here in Manitoba that have become, I'm not going to name names, but have become really incredible artists that their origins are, long prison terms, uh, gangs, violence. And so it, it is a, 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 an avenue toward reinvention. And a lot of these hardships, you can use that uh, um, in, the, in the discipline. And, um, but it's, um, you know, the, the breaks I got aren't lost on me. And that, that's kind of the difference. Uh, before the pandemic struck, I visited what used to be the solitary confinement wing of Stony Mountain. And so Canada is in the process of abolishing solitary confinement and prisons across the country are suddenly they have to come up with, you know, 
several hours of meaningful programming a day for guys that were sitting in, in cages all day long and nobody really knows what they're doing. So uh, uh, um, the warden Stoney asked one of his, uh, uh, you know, respected kind of veteran guards there if, if he knew anybody in the music scene. And he said, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. And he reached out to me and we talked. And so what we went in and did wasn't something that was happening. Uh, I mean, um, there were no guards. We'd sit in this small little room. My publisher, uh, um, the Muses Company, uh, Gord Schillingford Publishing, I'd asked them to if they'd give me some of my books to give to the men. And they graciously gave me books from all their authors, Katharina Vermette, Joe from Winnipeg, like uh, Catherine Hunter. And so it allowed me to go in with all these gifts and coffee and cookies. And, you know, we sat and had these conversations. After the first one, you know, my friend uh, said, boy, I've never seen anything like that, <laughs> you know. And it's, uh, it's just an honest conversation. There's no pretense or fronting. He'd say, you know, what brings you here? And I'd say, well, you know what? I suffered a, a good chunk of my life. And uh, I might have got an opportunity uh, somebody else might not have gotten. I'm aware of that. I'm, that's not lost on me. And it exists in my own family. Uh, my family in Toronto uh, were born into a, a poor, rough neighborhood. So my cousins in Toronto lived a very different life. I lived in Winnipeg. I was lucky. My family moved me here and raised me here, you know. We got out of government housing, lived in a nice neighborhood eventually. And so, um, but yeah, those conversations, uh, you know, I've yet to ever leave a, a prison visit anywhere where I wasn't so lifted and inspired and affected by the, that's the, that's the, um, that's the art world I'm interested in because it's like, holy smokes, man, like this is some profound stuff. And the only reason I know it is because it happened to me as a kid. Guys, you know, I had a guy that used to visit my junior high, a, a, a guidance counselor of sorts, and his son was a musician. He immediately used that angle. That's how he connected with me. And so over my life, I had a few people that were meaningful to me. And I thought, boy, that's important work. And, and, um, I got friends now that do this type of stuff too, and it's exciting to me because that's a really great use of their talents. You know? um, I wanted to talk to you in particular, Scott. A lot, a lot of what I what I like to do on the show is is uh, hear some honest stories about people who have had a mental illness or struggles with their mental health. And you've been very honest about your struggles with anxiety in particular. I know you've talked a lot about that, and I'm wondering sure. if you can tell me a bit about when you realized that was what was going on with you and kind of what that, what was happening at the time that you kindly kind of realized that, because I know I've, I've struggled all my life with anxiety, but I, I, I had no idea what the hell I, I thought I was just crazy or, you know, afraid yeah. of everything. I, I didn't know the word anxiety existed and that that was a condition and things like that. So no, well, when you and I were in school uh, age, I didn't hear that word either. Yeah. So I'm wondering when, when it, you became aware that this was what was going on with you and what that was like. A couple big things happened to me early on and they both related to my career. Um, one was I had a really big attack on stage at times change where I eventually had to leave in an ambulance and it was like a full house and, I had to make my way through the crowd, and I remember going to leave. I was playing guitar, and I'd said to Gilles Fonia and Joanna were playing with me, and I said, whatever happens uh, right now, don't stop playing. And they didn't. 
You know, they honored my request. And I got like as far as the piano and thought I was okay. So I sat down at the piano, you know, and kept, kept the song going and realized, uh oh, you know. And so I had to get through this packed house. And I passed John at the bar and I said, please be quiet, keep it low, and call an ambulance and have them meet me at the back door. And uh, so for years, Times was a difficult place for me, and I didn't know why, man. I, I started feeling bad. You know, my, my ex-partner was running the place. I had these weird feelings about Times. It had nothing to do with, really with the club as much as that attack, that, that moment. It, it haunted me. It, it was a very traumatic. What was going on, though? What, what happened in your mind that you knew you just had to get out of there? Uh, oh, you know, when, I'm not sure what your experience is, but the worst moments I've had with anxiety absolutely feel like a massive heart attack um you start sweating your heart starts racing you just feel nauseous from head to toe like it's you don't know whether you're going to pass out throw up be sick in any particular manner it's so it's so overwhelming and all-encompassing that there's no way in those early days you could convince me i wasn't dying right there on the spot and i didn't want to fucking die in front of an audience i really didn't want to die on stage it was such a terrible feeling. And the next time it happened was Regina Folk Fest. And it's, it's a very uh, difficult moment in, in my life, too, for a number of reasons. Um, I've always wondered if they thought I was a drug user. Like, I've never played the festival again. I've never really... I don't remember ever even having contact with them again, but it was one of the coolest festivals I'd ever played. I had the the best time other than the than the thing. And like, um, I remember laying in the back of an ambulance and seeing Devin Latimer run by on his morning jog. Like it was all very hyper real for me. And I was taken to the hospital, and I was I had all these uh, uh, things all you know uh, uh, wires going from every which direction, and I was kind of they knew I was anxiety and nobody really articulated that to me. So I really kept thinking I was still dying. And so I eventually like pulled these things off my body and, and, and checked myself out against their uh, um, recommendations because on Sunday was my main kind of concert. And I was really mortified at not making it for uh, what that might've, I mean, I, I hadn't played many folk fest. This was very new. And the idea of missing the show was, was a real, was catastrophic to me. And uh, so when I got back to the festival, I was immediately greeted with a crowd of people that knew me and that were worried for me and they're rushing toward me with hugs and stuff, which is lovely, but wasn't honestly what I needed maybe at the moment. And in the midst of all this, it was the year I met both Mary Gauche and Vic Chestnut. And in the midst of all this stuff, Vic was sitting uh, just outside the backstage area in his wheelchair and he had waved me over when he saw the commotion. So I went over and sat with him, and he had asked me what happened, and I told him, and he was immediately fixated because he had all kinds of symptoms related to this because of his condition. And this is, you know, um, we still, you couldn't go online necessarily the way you could now back then and have access. So I was like WebMD for Vic, and it, it endeared me to him and I, of course, was uh, a new fan on going, oh, my God, you know, this, you know, Vic wants to sit here in the shade and, and chat with me all weekend. And, and so it kind of was all these <laughs> conflicting energies and emotions. But, yeah, it, it ultimately, I thought I was dying. I mean, it, I was terrified. I, I remember the house I was billeted in 
when it all started, for some reason I drew a bath. It wouldn't be the first time I've done this in a, in a crisis moment and realized, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. This bath isn't going to do anything. And then I paced. And so when we're John, I called health links and they, when I described what was happening, they said, hang up right now and call 911. And so I did. And that was kind of the beginning of it. And um, eventually lorazepam, the drug, was my safety net. I never had to suffer one that badly again because of that pill. But that pill opened up a whole new journey. And I became, you know, I, I, I was, you know, totally addicted to it and took it, took it nonstop because uh, I was terrified to go back to that other place, you know. And so um, I don't know the psychology. Um, am I avoiding uh, issues of childhood and trauma and all these things. Sure, of course, I'm sure it's all those things, but it's also, it's everything else. It's life. And this is, it's a difficult deal here, you know. Um, um, like I say, as far back as I can remember, I always struggled to reconcile a lot of what I saw. And I try to avoid politics, even with my artist friends, because I, I often find myself at odds and I don't want to get into these aggressive, sometimes borderline abusive <laughs> conversations over the idea of politics. I think I'm not a politician. I would never want to be a politician. I don't want to waste my time and energy talking about it because it's, it's, it, there's, you know, it, it's just an <laughs> ugly kind of obnoxious thing most of the time. And who wants that? You know, of course there are good examples, I'm sure, but it's, um, you know, I think to be kind of a political mind, it, you sacrifice empathy and you know and it's the same as if i were to base my career on instagram likes and and uh, gold records and awards and stuff I, I would feel very badly about my career at this stage if, if i had to jury what i've achieved up until now by that means i'd be a failure but when i look at it in my terms in the world i like to imagine for myself i feel like one of the more successful in my peer group, to be quite frank. And I'll assure you that I make the least amount of money. You know, it, it, it's, it's a blessing to have, have, I always say to my mom, one day, one day it's conceivable to me that I'll see anxiety as a gift. I'm not there yet, believe me, but I, I really believe that somehow, you know. And sometimes I feel like I'm just on the far edge of this mountain going, oh, shit. Like, I got to get to the top. I got to get up there and take a breath of it and, and see for myself what this really is. And, you know, um, when I look at what my cousin did and his work, how it resonates today and how ahead of his time he was and, and how he was really a societal throwaway, you know, cancel culture wouldn't give my cousin a second look he's way beyond cancel culture he's a he's he was thrown away as a boy everybody that should have protected him failed and and somehow at the absolute rock bottom of that existence i like to say at the end of violence for my cousin was poetry and at the beginning of poetry was everything and he's done some profound work i'm in touch with men more than half a dozen men that were all life without parole, they were never expected to see the light of day again. And they're out working with at-risk youth. They're out working with gang members. They're out doing jobs that 
we need we need these jobs filled um, by by people that know what they're doing and ironically these are the people that know what they're doing you know so you get to a point where within your equity and whatever part of the arts you're in within that equity is you know it's it's different than money you choose how you spend that equity and it's very important the choices you make and and the returns you get from it later on or it's huge man um, you, you said that you were hoping to come to a place where you could see anxiety as a gift. Do you, do you feel like it still holds you back or, or it still has a negative effect on your life, even, even if you're as aware of it as you are now? Just to be perfectly candid, like uh, I, I have a car. I had three vehicles insured. I'm down to one that I seldomly drive. I walk everywhere all the time because it's it's a comfortable place for me. Um, I did one thing recently with Glenn Muir and, and Joanne and Jill, uh, kind of a stream taping, and it, it required me to be a location on Main Street at like 12.30. And yeah, it, it to be perfectly honest, it, it derails my whole day. I get up in the morning now and I, I, uh, I work on collage immediately. Um, I do certain little tasks around the house and then I'm typically doing a, a, a yoga class that I have on video every day. From there I make a, a, um, the same smoothie every day and I walk for usually at least 60 to 90 minutes and I have to follow this regimen to feel good without drugs. And uh, so I'll go out and do different things from time to time, and and often I'll come back and go, I'm not ready, I'm not ready for that, you know. And uh, it's costed. I've lost relationships over it, and friendships, and and I um. It hurt my feelings for a while. I felt resentful. I, I had some anger for a while, and I'm back at peace of it, you know. Like I just, uh, I'm, I'm committed to this deal. I have no choice. And but yeah, to answer your question. It's a massive part of my life, you know. But all the things that you've related to in the years that you've known me, most specifically music, are all products of it. So if I ever connected with you through a song, that's why. Because within that song, at least to me, is life or death. It's not a frivolous bubblegum thing. It's not about status or attitude or any of those things. It's I meant... Everything I put into that was everything I had, and so it's um, it's it's yeah. I mean, I, I have to take them both, right? I can't, I can't separate them now, you know. Yeah, it's funny when it, when I think about you know anxiety and and the troubles that I've had in my life. Like, sure, it's it's it prevents me all the time from doing things that I feel like I should or want to do. It 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 probably holds me back in a lot of ways, but at the same time. I, uh, I like to think that I'm a lot more empathetic as a result and supportive and a better listener and stuff because I know kind of what I would need. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's good and it's bad, right? Would I, would I trade it for somebody who was more successful, but not as empathetic or whatever? I, I don't know that I would. So it's, it's something that I accept and, and know that it has, it, 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 it does hold me back in certain ways, but it's also given me a lot as well. You know, when you look at kind of like, I, I think you and I share somewhat similar tastes in like the greater canyon of classic music, you know, and like you think for a minute how rare it is for a great artist to continue to 
be great. You know, I often use Tom Waits as an example because, you know, when he got sober and, and, and started to kind of grow up and grow into himself, um, his marriage, the stability, I mean, his work kept getting better. That's weird. Why isn't it like that for other people? I don't see that a lot. And when I got a little glimpse of, of uh, uh, when I got to meet him and his wife and, and, and his family and stuff like that, what I saw were like people that didn't live that rocky life, you know, like they really didn't at all. They lived like, like, like uh, blue collar creative people. And so they resisted the, you know, um, all these parties and galas and all that stuff that industries uh, put out there to celebrate us. I mean, it's, some of us don't need encouragement celebrating ourselves. You know, it's it's a dicey proposition, and it it doesn't have anything to do with the art. You know, I said to a songwriter buddy of mine once, "You're not going to find any songs at those Grammy parties. It's a bunch of it's a bunch of baloney." You know, and and we all know that. But of course, we're going to show up and and be excited that someone's excited about us. Of course, why wouldn't we? We're human. But. Um, is it what drives us? You know, the fact is, is we, we all get to make our own choices and, and live with the ensuing consequences. And in, in that regard, I see the anxiety thing like it's, yeah, I, I had to, I had to consider it. I couldn't just go wild anymore. You know, it wasn't going to work for me. And I don't think that was so bad. Interesting. So this, uh, this pandemic time where you haven't been able to make records, it sounds like you've been able to spend more time just doing your own creative pursuits. So is there a, is there a bunch of work to come or are you just like, are you thinking towards making more records or doing another book or anything like that? Like, Oh, all of it. Yeah. The record I've been working with Glenn Beer on this project for uh, coming up on three years and we got these orchestral recordings, these quartet recordings, but we're, we're adding, our group to them still so we've shared them online in various forms but none of them are actually completely finished yet so i've got that project with glenn and then the work tapes that inform those arrangements i worked very hard on uh in many cases it's me playing most of the instruments but i have uh, uh um, various artists come in to play a, a clarinet or a sing a harmony and uh, I've been slowly mixing those. So I have the one record which uh, my working title is The Suburb Beautiful um, for the more orchestral kind of record. And I, I've been thinking a lot about eventually releasing the, the work tapes because they're quite different. And I think there's an interesting juxtaposition. So to the people that are interested in, in, in my music, I think, they'll, I think they might enjoy that getting to hear that. So the orchestral stuff will be the first stuff that should come out around my birthday this year in December. And then I have um, a lot of new songs that I've been, um, as I've been sitting around the house, I, I, I kind of kind of refer to it as like the Guy Clark kind of idea in that uh, I'm going to either record them just alone with my guitar or, or maybe with my friend on piano, but I want to make a record um, there's a song called Christmas in July I wrote after John Prime died and, and another one I wrote after the tragedy in Nova Scotia. And I want to put them out just in a simple way like that. You know, I don't want to go in and, and uh, I love like John Prime's first record, you know, him and his guitar. I, I love those records. So I've always wanted to do one 
And for a while, I thought about revisiting old songs, and I was encouraged to, why don't you re record old songs? And I, so now I got a whole, I got a record's worth of these gentle little um, uh, acoustic songs that um, I don't know what I'll do with that. I thought maybe of doing uh, exclusive to Bandcamp, and if I can come, if I can make enough money back from the Bandcamp, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll do a vinyl pressing. So those are, you know, and then I approached my publisher uh, from the poetry book and asked them if they were interested in a book of poetry and collage. And they seem very excited, and uh, so we'll see. But all those things are kind of all, you know, I, suddenly I have this dream of having a show at the WAG one day where I could try to recreate the world that I live in. <laughs> To where if you went into this room, you'd see collage, you'd see poetry, you'd see photography, music. Uh, I mean, I got these uh, ambient um, soundscape soundtrack recordings that I've never released. I have a whole series of uh, um, ambient stuff I've done with uh, with trains. And, and uh, so there's a whole lot of music that I've produced. I, I got a whole record based on the writings of the poet Patrick O'Connell. Never seen the light of day, and and it's expensive, honestly, to put this music out in the world in the way that I want it to go out. I don't want to put out an LP with no insert. I won't do that again. So the next LP you see of mine will have a beautiful book with artwork and lyrics and poetry, and so yeah, lo lots of records. I hope you know that's that's my goal. Okay, I just want to say this, uh, like as as a friend and someone who knows you and has known you for a long time. I admire the fact that you have those lofty goals and you only want to put out the things that you can stand behind and that you believe in and all that. But, but sometimes as a fan, it's a little frustrating that it's been so long since your last record. And, uh, so I'm just wondering how we kind of reconcile those things. Like, do you feel pressure to give your fans something in the meantime, or do you feel like you just have to wait? It's tricky because, you know, the last record I had two. The last record, I had two labels. I had a Canadian label and an American label, and I'm grateful to both of them, but I went down there and paid for the record. I hired this super group uh, um, on Montgomery, El Dorado. Man, I had Tom Waits' daughter do a painting, a portrait of me for the album cover, and so I have this vision, and, and, and because I'm a smaller artist, I, I can't. I guess I can't expect these labels to... It, it's It's too much to ask to... You know, I don't want to, it's too much energy to put into something that only 100 people are going to get to hear, you know. And So I, what slowed me down since the Silver Hill release is, you know, the process of me writing that record, driving to Alabama alone, um, the, the two days of recording, it, it was such a tremendous and intense kind of process. And I feel like, you know, to me that record, you know, it, 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 in, in my heart, it stands as a piece of art that so much of the world will never hear, you know. And, and there was a few pretty prominent American critics that, that actually reviewed it and said, holy shit, what is this, you know. And like, but I can't, without the money, I can't crack the same publicity realm, you know. It's, um, well, Scott, I don't know if you, I know it's been a while since you released a record. I don't know if you've heard about this thing called crowdfunding where people give you money to make the project. Yeah, that I've you always make, been a bit but, at odds. Uh, you know, there are a lot of us out here. I know, I know you're putting yourself 
putting yourself down and saying there's only a hundred of us out here, but, but there are people who are passionate about what you do. I mean, Barb Reimer is a great example and there's other examples here of people who just love what you do and want to help you to make it. So, so we don't want to see you struggle and worry about how we're going to pay yeah, for this I thing or whatever. I did start a Patreon page that I haven't really developed yet. And, uh, I, I, I developed the band camp a little bit more cause I like that, you know, I, I um, yeah, it's it's such a great, easy, low cost thing. It for really you to do, is, right? and the Way model to, is terrific. You know, the people keep that in touch with us. Terrific. You know, it's interesting. I've never since I've kind of created the song shop, where I've brought Jamie Sitar in as the house engineer and built this little team around my studio. I've never treated myself to a record in that. You know, I've produced I've produced over a dozen records for people without ever doing one of my own in there. So I, I will do that. You know. And I mean, there are, there are funds and stuff out. I'm just saying there's, there's a lot of us that want to see it happen. And there's a lot of us that, that are willing to help you make it happen as well. Oh, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, all of it kind of ties together to, um, be, you know, I got to get out and travel and, and, and put that work in like for the American label with Silver Hill. I mean, uh, I never got a work visa. I never worked in America. I'm sure they were devastated. I never toured. How does a smaller indie artist, uh, uh, move, records like they don't do it it's not that i didn't try it's their system was so difficult and uh, it just became exhausting and then uh, a couple of the musicians involved in there and i clashed uh, i had a real i had a real fallout with the couple that owned the kind of studio where we made the record and it was i'll be honest it was quite traumatic for me they were they were quite mean to me frankly and uh yeah it got really ugly uh um and again, it's like, this isn't why I create art, you know? Uh, they were, uh, in some respects, I'd say they were borderline abusive. And uh, I finally, I, I put my foot down. I had enough. I thought, boy, I'm not going to be treated like this. And, uh, and yeah, so, yeah, they got me the American label and then fell out with the American label. And they're just, yeah, the whole thing. It's too bad because uh, I actually just listened to it recently for the first time in years. And I thought, boy, you know? I like this, <laughs> you know, like it, it, it's a real snapshot and I, I, um, yeah, it's a real moment in time. Um, the way we kind of approached it. And so I try to hold on to that part of the memory. Um, most of the musicians I'm still in contact with, but, um, but the husband and wife, of course I'm not. And, uh, for a minute it marred the experience for me, but I'm past it. I'm over it, you know? Well, that's good. Don't, don't let, uh, you know, anything hold you back where, uh, you have people who care about you and, and want to hear what you have to say. So hopefully you'll, uh, you'll get something out and know that there are people who will, uh, support it and, uh, and will be eagerly awaiting it. So, uh, that means the world to me. And it is certainly my goal over the pandemic. I've connected my home to my studio with, with conduits. So, and cables. So every inch of my house now is also studio. So uh, I, I opened up my attic into a loft, and so that'll be where I am with my guitar. And uh, so, yeah, the next thing we do here at the song shop is is going to be really amazing because I've I've put years of of time and energy and money into making the studio work this way. So the next record we do out of here um, will almost certainly be mine. I'm excited about it for sure. And I may never stop trying to change your mind 
I want to send a special thanks out to our good friend and major supporter, Barb Brimer, for encouraging Scott and me to make this episode happen. You can find out more about Scott Nolan and purchase his albums from his website, scottnolan.ca. His recent work, alongside composer and singer-songwriter Glenn Bure, can be found at dreamplay.ca. He also has some great music up at scottnolan.bandcamp.com. Buying music directly from an artist can really make a huge difference, especially right now while they can't play and uh, most of them just aren't earning any money. You know, Winnipeg is an isolated prairie town that from the outside, it doesn't look all that special or interesting, but somehow we have one of the richest music scenes anywhere. Scott Nolan is a major part of what makes the city so great musically and artistically. There's always some kind of magic brewing up in Scott's backyard at the song shop, so watch out for whatever comes out of there next, because it's bound to be great. Thank you for listening to Fly With Your Shadow. I really hope you enjoyed the show. I always love hearing your feedback, so please feel free to email me at flywithyourshadow at gmail.com or visit the website at flywithyourshadow.com and leave a comment. I'd also really appreciate it if you'd help spread the word about the show by telling a friend or two about the show or sharing this episode on social media. You can also let me know if you have any suggestions for future guests on the show because finding the guests and tracking them down seems to be the hardest part for me these days. Thanks to all of you and I hope you'll join me again on the next episode of Fly With Your Shadow.